Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Stick Together is recorded on the unceded lands of the Rwandari and Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and stand in solidarity with those resisting the ongoing colonial project of settler Australia. It always was, and always will be, Aboriginal land. Welcome to another episode of Stick Together. My name's Jackson McInerney. Stick Together is made in the Melbourne studios of 3CR Radical Community Radio and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. The program is made possible by the generous financial support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and we thank them for their ongoing support of the program. Stick Together is the only national program dedicated to union news, workers' stories and social justice. My name is Jackson McInerney and thank you once again for tuning in. Today on Stick Together, we talk to Sarah, a former midwife of 11 years, who has recently turned her back on the profession in a climate of increased stress and pressure in the last 28 months from wave after devastating wave of COVID-19. Sarah most recently worked in a large hospital in Melbourne's east, but has given up a job that brought her much joy, and we will find out why. But first, some union news. Incredible scenes in Sydney this Monday 21st of February as the government tried to blame the Rail, Tram and Bus Union for the government's own decision for a total switch-off of the rail network. Union leaders said workers arrived on-site early Monday morning prepared to run the network as normal, while simultaneously engaging in low-level industrial action targeting executive management and internal administration. Instead, workers were told they could not take their posts or drive their trains as the network would not be operating. This resulted in bedlam across Sydney's urban and suburban areas as an estimated 500,000 commuters had to suddenly change their plans. Here is the RTBU New South Wales Secretary, Alex Classens. Very, very disappointed that I'm standing here today. Um, And I just want to make the point straight up, this is not a strike. We are not on strike. All of the people behind me, all the people sitting in the meal rooms all across the network are ready to work at a minute's notice. Uh, We're all there, we're ready to do the work. As we agreed in the Commission late on Saturday night, we had 10 lawyers against us in the Commission on Saturday night trying to terminate our industrial action and terminate our enterprise agreement, which as people will remember, we've been trying to negotiate since the expiry of the previous one in May uh, last year. We've been taking various forms of protected industrial action since September. And as everybody will remember, we've actually only been on strike on two occasions during this current round of industrial action, an eight-hour overnight stoppage and a four-hour stoppage which we took. Other than that, we've continued to put on a range of bans and limitations which makes life difficult for management, we get that. We also gave them a guarantee that if there's any sort of an incident on the network, like there was the last time we were taking industrial action when we had a derailment down at Port Kembla, We immediately abandoned all the actions to make sure the system got back to safety. 
So we were all on board with the, with the package and I went to bed last night nice and tidy at 9.30 at night thinking everything's okay in the morning. There'll be some disruptions, it was never going to be perfect, but our people were there ready to work and you can imagine my shock this morning waking up and knowing that the government has just done the most low and dastardly thing that you could ever imagine a government doing. They've locked out their workforce and they've inconvenienced the people in New South Wales just because it was going to be a little bit difficult. And I mean, I don't know how to put it any stronger than that. Uh, and for, them, for, for a minister to get on 2GB this morning and say that it was an unsafe situation, like really, if you're ever going to get railway people angry, it's accusing us of un doing an unsafe act. There is no way that me or anybody behind me or anybody out there working on the railway would do anything to jeopardise the safety of this railway. And like I said, I've already quoted the Paul Kembler case at the last time we took industrial action. Yesterday was also, it was a very important day for me because it was two years ago, sorry, two years ago a very good friend of mine died in a train accident. And for me to have to go through all this rubbish and stand here and justify why we're taking protected industrial action, which we're allowed to do legally under the law. We have done everything by the book. And you know, sure, there are people out there that aren't happy about some of the actions that we've taken. But you know, like we've always said, we care about the job that we do. We want to maintain a good, safe network. And we just need the government to get on board with this. A key concern in the stalled industrial negotiations between the Perite government and the RTBU is a guarantee that no lines or services would be lost in a suspected privatisation of the network planned by the Conservative government. Last week, February 15th, thousands of nurses, midwives and their supporters marched in Bega, Tamworth, Newcastle, Broken Hill and on Parliament House in Sydney. It was the New South Wales Nurse and Midwives Association's first statewide strike since 2011 and organisers vowed to come back bigger and angrier each time their demands are ignored. The strikes occur within a broader industrial crisis brewing against the Perite state government's let-it-rip policy on the Omicron variant, whose policy settings have seen more than 22 people die of the virus each day in the state since the beginning of this year. On-the-ground reportage suggested striking nurses carried signs reading, Are you joking? We are not coping. And... Stop the praise, give us a raise. Other signs detailed common occurrences in the COVID-ravaged ICUs. Skeleton staffs managing end-of-life care, including family Zooms for final goodbyes. Here are two nurses on strike in Sydney. Audio thanks to the ABC. We're not being listened to. This is my third rally in two years, so our voices are not being heard. What goes through your mind when you hear the Premier say the health system remains strong? It's only strong because we're propping it up, like, but we're getting exhausted. We're just, like, every weekend I just have nothing left. I just can't, I can barely function. So, anger. And we're angry, yeah. We just want to, we just want a bit of, like, sit at the table and actually talk about what's going on and actually listen to us. Because we're not, we're not saying it because we, we're lazy or that we don't care. We actually care so much. And we want, we just want better conditions for our, everyone that we work with. And, and that will be better for our patients. With international borders reopening this week, Shane Rolston, the Australian Workers' Union National Organiser for Agriculture and Horticulture Industries, has a timely reminder that the life of many migrant workers on Australian farms might not be technical slavery, but is pretty bloody close. 
Speaking to the On The Job podcast, Rolston was responding to the Morrison government's newly proposed ASEAN Agriculture Visa, which aims to supply a ready stream of migrant workers from Southeast Asian nations to service Australia's farms. Recent testimony to the Senate Select Committee on Job Security by migrant workers already in Australia made for harrowing listening. Audio thanks to AustralianUnions.org. I come here for work money. I'm not come here for slave. You should give me a better life. And that's why I fight for my peoples. How many people share a kitchen? 60 people in one kitchen. In one kitchen. Mm. The contract we signed in Samoa was that we work for $25.41 an hour. And we were to work Monday to Friday, and the weekend was up to us. But Sunday, we could go to church if we wanted to. Then we were given another contract, and we were just told just to sign it. We really wanted to um, have this contract um, translated, but it wasn't the case. We wanted to join the union. However, our liaison officer told us not to join the union. Four of us um, in one room, and once we were given some uh, a shopping, which consisted of two toilet paper. Fast, yeah. I mean. Four packets of um, noodles. Two soap. Bars, four potatoes. One bread. One bottle of juice. For four people for the whole week. The 11th and the 17th of November, you worked every day from 6.30am to 3 or 4pm. And so we're looking at a 64-hour work week. You end up with $100. What you've described is horrendous and completely unconscionable. It's horrific to hear your evidence. The AWU are working with major retailers Coles and Woolworths to ensure supply chains are free from such outrageous exploitation. Rolston believes Australian consumers would be willing to pay higher prices for groceries if they knew the food was harvested by people on award wages. Or perhaps the farm owners could take a little less profit and pay their workers a living wage. And that's Union News. You're listening to Stick Together, Australia's only national program dedicated to union news, workers' stories and social justice, broadcast across the country on the Community Radio Network. I'm Jackson McInerney. And joining us now is former midwife Sarah, who has just left a job she spent 11 years honing her craft within. Now, anyone with experience of pregnancy and birth knows that midwives are, by and large, pretty special people. Patient, supportive, powerful, caring. But for Sarah, work in a large hospital in Melbourne's East had become untenable over these last few years. And we're going to have a little chat about why. Sarah, thanks so much for talking to Stick Together. Thanks for having me. So firstly, there's been a lot made by the Victorian branch of the Nurses and Midwives Federation of the $60 co-payment per shift for COVID nurses. And I was actually in conversation with you that I discovered that this payment was limited only to those working in, quote-unquote, COVID wards. Could you talk a little bit about how that discrepancy has impacted maternity wards and the people that work there? Um, Yeah, so it's not just COVID wards. It's more sort of high-risk areas. So ED, 
um, in a in a midwifery setting, birthing suite midwives that were working with COVID positive patients would receive it. Um, otherwise, outside of COVID wards, you would receive a thirty dollar um, COVID surge allowance. But I'm pretty sure, don't quote me, but I think in private hospitals, midwives and nurses didn't receive that payment. So it was only for the public sector, um, which I don't really understand because the risk is the same. We're wearing the same level of PPE. The staffing shortages are all the same. We're all doing the same work. Um, so I don't really understand how that worked out, but yeah. So just explain that to me. How do they determine considering the whole population is at risk of COVID, how do they determine who is in an at-risk environment? I can't honestly tell you. I predominantly work in an office environment where I work with, you know, there might be 20 people coming in and out of my office, working in the clinical setting all around the hospital. I have to go out into the clinical area multiple times throughout my shift, but I'm personally not entitled to that allowance. Um, so I still wear the same level of PPE. I feel like my risk is just as high because I'm coming into contact with so many people, but for me, I don't get that allowance. Um, and I know there's plenty of people in that situation as well. And was that causing, you know, frustration, dissatisfaction? Was that like a, an ongoing industrial issue within your workplace? Um, Oh, look, I mean, it's kind of just a series of disappointments throughout this whole thing, I guess, that, I mean, this surge allowance really, it was too little too late. You know what I mean? Like, if anything, it just made so many people angry, I think. Um, it, it only came out a few months ago. I don't know a single person who has been paid this surge allowance correctly for every shift that they've done. Um, and it's just added to the frustration and the feelings of not feeling valued, I suppose. Um, yeah. It reminds me a bit of the, you know, $400 twice cash payment to aged care workers that is supposed to yeah. paper over the broader yeah, problems in the exactly. industry. Yeah. And a lot of health workers I've spoken to over this period have said that, you know, there's all these problems in health and COVID has just really highlighted them and made them so much more obvious yeah. and yeah. constant. Can you just tell me for you, you know, mm -hmm. what are those ongoing frustrations and how did COVID highlight them? Um, look, I guess I'll start with ratios. I mean, we're very lucky in Victoria in that we have set in stone ratios, but what that means generally on a nursing ward is one nurse to four patients. So in midwifery, say, for example, if you're working on a postnatal ward, that's one midwife to four women. But those four women also have babies. So you're effectively looking after eight. Hopefully no one has twins, but that's also very common. And, you know, as, as people are coming in with more and more high acuity medical conditions, they're requiring far more care. Their babies are requiring far more care, you know, none of us get into this industry for the money. We get into this industry because we care and we want to improve outcomes and, you know, provide information and support and empower the families that we work with. But when you're just constantly running, you're not getting a second to finish a task. You're not getting that, like, you know, 
where you get to actually sit with families and talk to them and encourage them and support them. It really literally just feels like you're ticking a box and you're sending them home and you know that you haven't given them everything that you could give because you just don't have the time and it's heartbreaking. So then that compounded with everything that's going on with COVID, having to wear full PPE on a shift, which is like, it's impossible then you're, you don't really get to take breaks anymore. You're so dehydrated. Add the constant stress of being in the middle of a global pandemic. You're concerned about catching COVID, passing COVID on, taking it home, taking it to your loved ones. There was all of that stress. And then obviously with all of the furloughing of staff, we're just, we're doing the job of a hundred people right now. It's crazy. And I think what really broke me one day was um, with the visiting hours, obviously new, new parents, like their partners, can't come in to support them in the postnatal ward. I think some hospitals, they've only been allowed in for an hour. I mean, could you imagine you've just had a new baby and then you have to go home, leave your partner and the new baby in the hospital and you only get to see them for an hour the next day? You know, and I was working a shift and every single woman that I was looking after was just in tears for the entire shift. They were exhausted. They needed support. They wanted their partner there because their partner was missing all of these milestones. First nappies, baths, helping with feeds, the basic things of changing clothes and things. And then I remember that shift was the day that the announcement came that they were going to allow 10,000 people at the Melbourne Cup. And I was just like, really? How does that work? New parents can't even be supported, but we can have 10,000 people at a horse race Mm. and that's okay, you know? And it was just heartbreaking. And how did you feel the attitude from hospital management was like around you know, all of these issues, you you know, like around, you know, did you feel like they were pushing uh, for the government to acknowledge those kind of compassionate reasons to stay with people or, you know, around PPE? I've I've heard other people say that, yeah, the idea of having a real bathroom break or even drinking water or feeding yourself Mm. because of how hard it is to get in and out of this gear, Mm. like surely there's people you can go and talk to and say, this is not working, you know, like I'm not, can we change anything? Unfortunately, the managers are all being pulled onto the floor as well because there's just no staff. We've got people that haven't worked on the floor for 20 years having to come and do clinical shifts. We've got students coming to replace nurses and midwives on the floor because there's not enough staff. Like, it's getting dangerous to the point that we've got people that haven't practised for so long stepping into the clinical area and, you know, they've forgotten so many things or they can't keep up with the pace of things. Things are missed. People are discharged home without having everything done. You know, so managers are just running. They're, they're exhausted. They're trying to hold together a sinking ship and... You know, like it, it's kind of difficult to catch anybody to talk about anything. It's everybody's just running crazy. Yeah, it's, you know, you've kind of articulated already, you know, what solidified leaving for you. Can you talk a little bit about like what you're leaving behind, like what you'll miss about the work 
and whether to your mind there were any realistic or feasible changes that the union could have pushed for that could have kept you in this workforce? Oh, look, I mean, there's so much about it that I'm going to miss. I mean, it's a profession that I've dedicated my entire adult life to, I guess. Um, I mean, and there's an incredible amount of guilt as well. I feel guilty for leaving, you know, stepping out of the trenches, you know, but I'm just like, I just can't do it anymore. Um, In terms of what the union could do, I mean, I don't know anymore. Like we, we just need more staff. We need better incentives to do what we do. Like I know people that do traffic control that get paid better than what we do. You know, and it's like I remember having a friend stacking shelves that got paid better than I do. And everybody's kind of just looking around thinking, why Why do we do this to ourselves? Why do we work all of this shift work? You know, you do a late early shift. You don't finish work until 9.30, possibly get out of there at 10. You have to start work again at 7 o'clock in the morning. Then a few weeks later you've got to do night shift and you've got to swap back and, It's just, yeah, put on top of that all the PPE and all the short staffing and everybody's just thinking, why? What's the point? We don't feel appreciated anymore. Like I know in the beginning of the pandemic, you know, everybody was like, praise healthcare workers, you're doing such an incredible job. But then it all just got thrown back in our faces when people got sick of lockdowns. And it was like, do you not actually realise what we've all been going through this entire time? It's only just starting. At that point, we'd never had a wave. You know, when we reached the first time, when we reached like 700 cases and we'd been in stage four lockdown for months, that wasn't a wave. And all of the healthcare workers tried to tell everybody, like, it hasn't happened yet, guys. We know you're tired, but we're tired too, you know. And so it kind of just, yeah, felt like everybody's just getting angry at us now. They're calling us liars, like we didn't feel appreciated anymore. So I think a lot of us are kind of just feeling, what's the point anymore? Why do this when there's plenty of other jobs that we could get that aren't as hard on our bodies, on our minds, on our emotions? So, Sarah, there were huge strikes in New South Wales just last week. Thousands of nurses and midwives walking off the job, marching in the streets. And a key plank, interestingly, was recognition of babies as people for the calculation of ratios (laughs) in maternity wards. It's really interesting that you're saying that's the same case here in Victoria. Mm. What are the immediate need? Like, obviously, babies are people. Um, <laughs> what are the needs of children after birth? Do you do, is it just kind of set and forget? Or... Not at all. Are you find me one first-time mother that can just breastfeed with no support whatsoever, you know? Those first feeds in the early couple of days take upwards of an hour. I'm a lactation consultant as well, so a big passion of mine is supporting families to reach their breastfeeding goals. So it's heartbreaking for me to just 
only have five minutes to spend with a new mum who I can obviously see is struggling and I know that there's no community supports available to her but you put in say first feed takes a good hour if that mum had gestational diabetes then that baby's blood sugars need to be checked every three hours the baby needs to be fed every three hours throw in if the baby needs IV antibiotics phototherapy you know they're they're all um I guess quite high acuity medical conditions that require such a high level of care and they're not that's not included in what we do in our day add that if the mother had a cesarean you know and she's requiring such frequent observations such high amounts of um pain relief regular checks on her she can't get out of bed to do anything for her baby um you know it's to think that's multiply that by four how do you fit that all in how Mm. do you set these families up for positive outcomes you know um for not falling into a pit of anxiety and depression within the first few weeks and then extend that onwards and um, you know attachment disorders ongoing childhood depression and anxiety sleep disorders i mean it just goes on and on and on really it affects generations so you know there were those thousands of workers striking in new south wales mm-hmm. last week and yeah. a lot of the commentary from the leadership of the new south wales um, midwives and nurses association was that with these massive staff shortages, with the incredible centrality of hospitals in our battle against COVID, nurses are in a really powerful bargaining position right now. And, Mm. you know, the government, it's not just in New South Wales, but here in Victoria as well, are trying to put caps on people employed by the government, what kind of pay rises they can receive in their bargaining Mm. agreements, even though they're very happy to give themselves ministers and high level executives 10, 11, 12% increases without batting an eyelid, but it seems the public service is limited to 2%. Do you think that, you know, talking to ex-colleagues and other members, do you think there's a willingness within the industry in Victoria to take to the streets? And do you think that it would work? Mm. Look, I haven't heard many many discussions about it. I mean, obviously, everybody's very in support of what is going on in New South Wales. In all honesty, I think everybody here is just too tired. I haven't heard any talks of organising, um, but also, like, I would sort of think that that should come from the union. Um, I think they should be kind of revving us all up to to really make some changes um but yeah no i haven't in the workplace i haven't really heard anybody discuss it um it's very rare to have a conversation that just doesn't involve covid these days to be honest i mean we've got nothing else to talk about it's all we do is work go home covid Well, I hope whatever it is you're doing next, Sarah, uh, brings you some enjoyment. Um, And thank you so much for talking to Stick Together today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Sarah's late comments there about it being up to the union to demand these changes are being played out in a lot of different industries at the moment. I work 
in a school, and certainly there is some dissatisfaction here in Victoria with the AEU placing pressure on union members to vote yes to an agreement that results in a real-world pay cut over the next few years when matched with inflation. But we have to remember that unions are their members, so all in all, it's up to us to put the pressure on union leadership. Thanks for listening to Stick Together today, and remember, wherever you are, whatever you do, there's a union for you. So stick together. Catch you next time. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.